Good morning, Whitefields. Good to be with you this morning. I'm going to be preaching from the text, which Lisa read earlier this morning. So um, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray as we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and, and uh, Lord, we ask that you would give us humble hearts. Lord, we ask that you give us ears to hear. Lord, because you are the God of the universe, Lord, you are the God who is here at this moment and by your spirit desires to speak to us through your word, desires to move and work in our lives, Lord, and we want that to happen. Lord, we desire that in our hearts, Lord, you would break apart any fallow ground, Lord, any hard ground, Lord, that you would make our hearts be good soil that's ready to receive your word and produce much fruit. And that's our prayer for us as a congregation that... Lord, in our lives, in, a, in the places where you've put us, Lord, that we would produce much fruit for your name's sake, for your glory. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that as we look at your word today, you would give us spiritual insight and that you would do spiritual work in our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 22. Um, you know, we moved into our house here in Longmont couple months ago. It's been a few months since we moved in, and uh, we're pretty much done moving. You know, we got all the stuff out of boxes for the most part, but there is one room in our house that's still a work in progress. Um, It's my study. That's kind of the final frontier of unpacked boxes in our house. Uh, My study's down in our basement, and so, you know, it's kind of out of view. And so with all the busyness that's been going on in our lives for the past few months, I've made sure that all the other parts of the house got taken care of, But my study was kind of at the bottom of the priority list, right? Because it's kind of like my cave, and I just go in there and study and pray, and I don't need it to look nice. I just need, you know, some basic stuff so I can seek the Lord and study. So uh, this past week, though, I decided that, you know, we've been in the house long enough. It's about time that I cleaned up the office. So I started unpacking boxes, and actually I ended up throwing a lot of stuff away because we got this moving company in Hungary to help us move our stuff uh, over to the U.S., and they literally packed up everything. Like, uh, like full-on, they packed up paper towels and, like, used napkins and trash cans full of trash and stuff like that. So I had a bunch of boxes actually full of trash that I had to throw away. But amongst all that stuff that I didn't need, I did find something that I treasure, something very simple uh, but something very meaningful to me. And this is a, actually, it's a picture of my wife. It's my favorite picture of my wife, Rosemary. I took it up in Estes Park about nine years ago, the first time I, I brought Rosemary over to Colorado so she could meet my family. And uh, this picture has been on my desk in every you know, place that I've lived for the past nine years. It's something that I never get tired of looking at, uh, looking upon, because, uh, not because it's something very ornate, Uh, or something very expensive. It's really not, Um, but because it's the image of the one that I love, and I never get tired of looking upon the image of the one that I love. Today, we're going to look at a picture. We're going to look at one of the most poignant pictures of Jesus, which is found in the whole Old Testament. You know, the whole Bible is the story of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about that for weeks now as we study through Genesis. And the Old Testament really gives us the background that we need, the foundation we need to understand who Jesus is, why he came, and what his death on the cross accomplished for us. 
You know, the Old Testament is full of pictures. It's full of images of Christ. We call them foreshadowings. They were masterfully and intentionally placed there, orchestrated in human history by God in order to prepare the hearts of the people for even thousands of years beforehand for the coming of the Messiah. I don't know if you've ever watched a really good movie or or read like a really good book. One of these ones where you get to the end of the story and then you think back and you realize that in fact every little detail, even things that, that seem totally arbitrary when you were first watching them, you realize that every aspect of the story was very intentionally put there by the author. They were clues, they were hints, they were foreshadowings of what was really going on in the big picture, but you couldn't see the big picture. And then when everything comes to a head, right, then you get to see the whole picture come together and it all makes sense. You know, these are the kinds of movies, these are the kinds of books that you can watch and read over and over because they're so masterfully made that each time you watch that movie or read that book, you realize something new. You realize something else that the author put in there intentionally. It seemed arbitrary. It seemed even like it didn't make any sense when you were reading it. You were like, what is this doing here? Until you get to the end of the story, and in light of that, everything makes sense. You know, sometimes in the film world, they call these Easter eggs, right? Now, God is the ultimate storyteller, and he's writing his story of salvation and redemption on the pages of human history. And that story is still being written, even to this day. And the amazing thing to think about is that you and I actually get to live in that story. We get to live it out. We get to live out our chapter of God's story of salvation and redemption. But in that story, in that big story that God's writing, this chapter, Genesis 22, this is a major Easter egg. Right? Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians verse 17, he says that the Old Testament writings, the things that happened in Old Testament times, these were shadows or foreshadowings of the things to come, but that the substance is found in Jesus Christ. So in this section, uh, this event which happened in the life of Abraham, where God, God calls him to go up to this mountain and sacrifice his son, This is masterfully ordained and crafted and inspired by our great God to foreshadow Jesus Christ, to give people a picture of Jesus Christ. This is an event which took place roughly 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. It's a story which doesn't really make total sense in the scheme of Genesis. You're wondering, what's going on here? It seems like God's calling Abraham to do an arbitrary, perhaps even a cruel thing by sacrificing his son, until you realize what this really means in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the only son of the Father, on that exact same mountain as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as a substitute for you and for me. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So the title of today's teaching is The Sacrifice and the Provision. And that's how we're going to break it down. First, we're going to talk about the sacrifice, and then we're going to talk about the provision. If you have your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to go back a few verses. We started reading in Genesis 21 verse 33. So you can follow along. First of all, let's talk about the sacrifice. Think about this statement. At the heart of the call of God is the surrender of the will. 
I'm going to say that again. At the heart of the call of God is the surrender of the will. And and that is the essence of what's going on in this story. You see, more than the sacrifice of Isaac, which God actually stopped from happening, the real sacrifice that God requires of Abraham in this section is what? It's the sacrifice of his will. That's the real sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of his volition. It says in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, After these things God tested Abraham. Now think about that. What does that mean? After what things? And if you remember where we're at in our story, the big picture, right? Here's what's going on. Abraham and his wife Sarah have been given a promise by God that if they will close their eyes and take his hand and walk with him by faith, he will bless them and make them a great nation. And he'll give them a big chunk of real estate to be the homeland for this new nation. But then what happens? Nothing. A lot of nothing for a really long time, right? 25 years, nothing happens. They wait. And each and every day that goes by, the situation looks more and more hopeless. But finally, God does a miracle. God keeps his promise. And despite her old age, Sarah miraculously conceives and gives birth to the child of promise, Isaac. You know, finally, this is the feeling that they're having. Just finally, this terribly frustrating period of waiting is now over. And they've received the promise of God and they can turn a new page. They can start a new chapter in their lives. You know what we read uh, after that in chapter 21, right? We read last week that Isaac was born. Abraham and Sarah, now we read at the end of chapter 21, they settled down in Beersheba. And they lived there for a long time. They dropped their anchor. Before they were nomadic people. They were traveling around. Now they've decided to, to throw down their anchor and settle down. Right? We read in the end of chapter 21 that Abraham planted a grove of tamarisk trees. Now, trees take a long time to grow, right? You're not just going to plant a tree and then move on. No, this is symbolic here. When he plants a tree... That means he's settling down. He's done moving around. In our day, it'd be like saying, all right, I'm choosing to put down some roots. I'm buying a house. I'm staying here for a long time. This is going to be the place where I raise my son. And so he plants some trees. This is a picture here of tranquility. After many years of roaming around, after difficulty, after struggling, after having their faith tested by trials, now things finally calm down. Life gets smooth. Life gets tranquil. Abraham and Sarah settle down in Beersheba and they take it easy and they enjoy life and they raise their son. And then chapter 22 begins with these very ominous words. After these things, after this time of tranquility, after this time of raising their son, after these things, dun, dun, dun. At this point, Isaac is a grown man. Um, We're looking at him either being 15 to 30 years old. We don't know exactly. Jewish commentators believe that he was 30 years old. The reason is because in just two chapters from now, right after his mom dies, he's going to get married. So we're looking at a grown man here, and that's important because you've got to forget the flannel graph where Abraham's carrying a little baby up to the altar. No, we're talking about a grown man. So after this season of peace and tranquility, after this time of picket fences and apple pie and little league and things finally coming together and going smoothly in his life, after this time of raising his little boy, the promised child, up to adulthood, God tested Abraham. 
Now, why does God need to test Abraham? What's the purpose of this? I mean, doesn't God already know that Abraham has faith? I mean, hasn't that already been proved over the past 40 years or so? I mean, is it for God's sake? Is God going to learn something new here? No, of course not. Uh, Is it for Abraham's sake? Maybe. You know, God said at the end, now I know that you love me. And in reality, what it is is that now Abraham knows that God knows that he loves him. But I tend to think it was even for a greater purpose. I think that this whole thing was done for the sake of Isaac and for the sake of those of us who read this story later on. See, this was a test. It was to prove Abraham's faith. Some of you, that's what your translation says, that God proved the faith of Abraham. To show the extent of Abraham's faith, to show the extent of his trust in God, that it was unconditional, that he trusted in God's character, in God's promise. And it proved to Isaac that his dad really does trust the Lord. That his dad really does trust the Lord enough to obey God and follow even when he doesn't know why he has to do this or what the purpose of this is going to be. You know, it proves to you and I the extent of Abraham's trust in God's goodness, God's ability to provide and keep all his promises. And in the same way, when your faith is put to the test, when the doctor comes in and gives you the bad news, when you lose something that was dear to you, when things don't work out like you had hoped and planned, when your faith is tested, remember that those are chances for you to prove your faith and your trust in God's character. For all those people who are watching you, you know, for your children, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, for your family members. These are chances for you to prove your faith. So God speaks to Abraham, and Abraham responds immediately. He says, here I am, Lord. And God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. This is phrased so dramatically. It's so drawn out, right? It's intended to make you feel the intensity of it, the weight of it of what God is calling Abraham to do. He says, take your son, Abraham, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I'll show you. Interestingly, this is the first time that the word love is used in the entire Bible. The first instance. God waited 22 chapters to use the word love. And the first time he mentions it is in relation to the love of a father for his son. You know, any of you men in here, fathers who have sons, and you know what I'm talking about. You know what this is about. Think about this. Feel it. Let it sink down in you. The first time the word love is used in the whole Bible is in relation to the love of a father for his son in the context of that father making a choice to give up his son, to sacrifice his son because there's something that he loves even more than his son. That's heavy, isn't it? Do you get a sense of the intensity of the situation, the intensity of this challenge that God is putting before Abraham? God's saying to Abraham, Abe, I know you love your boy. I know he's your whole world. And Abraham, I know that you do love me. But now I'm going to ask you to choose between him and me. Would you be willing to give him up if I asked you to? If you had to choose between him and me, would you choose me? Do you love me more? And you know, for me, and I imagine for some of you too, hearing that is... uh, That's a terrifying thought. 
That's a, that's a shocking, terrifying thought, isn't it? It certainly is for me. That's a choice that none of us would ever want to be faced with. We hope we'll never be faced with. But there is a basic spiritual principle that's being revealed here. And that is this. That whatever it is that you love most, in your heart of hearts, that is your God. Martin Luther said this. He said, whatever your heart clings to, Whatever your heart relies upon, that is your God. An idol is whatever claims the loyalty which rightly belongs to God alone. And you know, it's been said that the human heart is an idol factory. But you know what's interesting? That most of the time, the things that we idolize, the things that we make idols out of in our hearts, they're not terrible things. Usually they're actually good things. They're wonderful things. But the problem is when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing in your life. And whatever it is that you love most in your heart of hearts, you will be willing to make sacrifices for it. You know, it's a good test for us is to see if something, a good thing in our life has become an ultimate thing. One test is to say, are you willing to compromise? Are you willing to sacrifice for that thing? Are you willing to compromise your beliefs, your ethics for that thing? Well, then if in that case, that might be uh, an ultimate thing in your life, an idol. Because, you know, an idol isn't just something in your life. It is the thing in your life. It is the ultimate thing in your life. It is the thing which gives your life purpose, and it gives you identity, and it gives meaning to your whole existence. And so whatever the ultimate thing in your life is, maybe it's success, I think it is for a lot of people in our culture, or a particular relationship, or whatever it is, you will be willing to compromise for it. You will be willing to make sacrifices for it. And that's why the picture of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, whom he loves, for his God, whom he loves, is so poignant, right? God is calling Abraham out on the carpet on the one thing that he loves most in this world, and he's asking him to give it up. He's saying, do you love me most? And God is asking Abraham, are you willing to trust me unconditionally? Again, I'll repeat that phrase I said at the beginning. At the heart of the call of God is the surrender of the will. You see, there's a problem here, which probably you realized, which uh, obviously Abraham realized with this call of God. If he obeys the call of God, if he sacrifices his son, if he's obedient to God, well then, what about that promise that God made to him? That through Isaac, he would have a multitude of descendants. That through Isaac, he'd become a great nation. Isaac isn't married yet. He doesn't have any kids. If Abraham sacrifices him in obedience to God, well, then that will never happen. So why would God take him through 40, 50 years of, of, of painstaking waiting just so that he could sacrifice his son? So Abraham's faced with a decision. He has to decide, will he obey God even though what God's telling him to do doesn't make any sense to him? You know, if you look back on the life of Abraham, you'll see that whenever God calls him to do something, it's always open-ended, right? God says, Abraham, go. Abraham says, go where? And God says, I'll show you later. Just start walking. God says to him, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, how? God says, I'll show you later. Just trust. Now God tells him, Abraham, go to the top of the mountain. 
and I want you to put your son to death. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll show you later, just climb. That's Christianity. Do you know that? That is Christianity. Here's how we tend to be as people. We are willing to obey God. We're very happy to obey God if what he tells us to do makes sense to us. Right? We tend to say, God, if you'll just give me all the information, then I will follow you if I think it's a good idea. If I think that will really be good for me. If that fits into my plan for my life. Over the years, I've talked to uh, many people about becoming Christians and following Christ. And oftentimes, I've had conversations with people where they would say things like, you know, I, I'm, sincerely, I am interested in becoming a Christian. But I want to know. If I do, well then, will I have to, what will I have to give up? Will I have to break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend? If I do become a Christian, will I be able to continue living the lifestyle I'm living right now? If I do become a Christian, will I have to stop doing that thing? And I used to try to answer those questions and tell people, you know, this is what Christians can do and this is what Christians can't do. But I realized that I was actually doing a disservice to people by doing that. Because if you are saying to God, I will obey if, I will follow if, you show me exactly where you're going to take me and exactly what you want me to do and you tell me the extent of it, then I can, you know, you know, I will do that if, then you're not actually obeying the call of God. You're not actually answering the call of God to follow him, to make him Lord of your life, to walk with him by faith. You're trying to stay in control of your own life. You're trying to stay on the throne of your own life. You're trying to stay behind the driver's seat of your own life. You're not making him the Lord of your life. You're not surrendering your will. At the heart of the call of God is the call to surrender your will. If you're not, uh, you know, if you're saying, I will obey and follow if... I know where you're taking me, and if it makes sense to me. But the call of God, right, is to walk with him by faith. It is the call to surrender your will and trust him unconditionally. And if you do that, like Abraham, he promises more blessing, more abundant life than you could ever imagine, than you could ever create or manufacture for yourself in your own striving or efforts. That is Christianity. That is what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ, to lay down your life that you might receive his life, true life. It means surrendering your will. It means trusting and obeying and following, even when you don't know where he's taking you, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense to you. In other words, we shouldn't ask God if what he wants to do in our lives fits into our agendas. Because what God wants to do is give you a new agenda. The essence of walking with God by faith is to take your hands off your life and say, Lord, I trust you unconditionally. You know, trusting the Lord unconditionally means holding things with open hands, open palms rather than clenched, clenched fists. Do you get the difference between that? It's like Abraham here. He's, he's holding his son essentially with an open palm and saying, Lord, you gave him to me. He's yours. I wouldn't have him if you hadn't given him to me miraculously. I have nothing that I haven't received from you. So, Lord, if you want to take him, well, then I'm going to trust that you have a plan with that and that you know what you're doing, even though I don't. You know, all of us need to learn to hold things with open palms rather than clenched fists. 
And, and the ability to do that, it comes from choosing to trust God unconditionally because you trust in who he is. You trust that he truly loves you, that he has a plan for your life, that he knows more than you do and he actually knows better than you do. So Abraham and Isaac, they go on this three-day journey to the land of Moriah. So here they are. It's like a three-day father-son backpacking trip, right? They're bonding. They're doing guy stuff, eating outside, you know, watering trees. You know what I'm saying? But Abraham knows, he knows what's coming. They're bonding. That, that had to make it even that much more painful, you know? They've been bonding, and every footstep, is like twisting a knife in Abraham's heart because he knows with each step that he takes, they get closer to the mountain where Abraham knows what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to kill his son. And, and when they get there, right, they get to the point where he can see the mountain. So he says to these two guys who came with him, he says, wait here. Isaac and I are going to go up to the mountain and we're going to worship. And then we, we will return. Notice that. He says, we will return. Interesting. There's two interesting things in this, in this section, in what Abraham says here. Number one, this is the first occurrence of the word worship in the Bible. And it's used in regard to sacrifice. Abraham's sacrifice is his act of worship to God. You know, in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, he uses this idea of sacrifice as an act of worship. And he says this, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying that giving your entire being to God as a sacrifice, not holding anything back, that is the ultimate form of worship, right? Worship isn't just something you do from time to time, but it is a way that you live all the time. And secondly, it's interesting here because Abraham tells these guys, we will return to you. I guess it would have been kind of uh, conspicuous to Isaac if he said, we're going to go up and then I'll be back in a little bit. You know, Isaac would be like, hey, what's going on, you know? He says, we're going to go up and then we're going to come back. He's showing that he has faith that God is going to do something. He doesn't know what God's going to do, but God's going to do something. In Hebrews chapter 11, we get a little more insight into the faith of Abraham in regard to what God was going to do with his son. He says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him up from the dead, from which he, figuratively speaking, did receive him back. What that means is that Abraham fully expected that he was going to have to kill his son, that he was going to have to go through with this thing, you know, burn his body on the altar, and that God would somehow resurrect him, even though there wasn't any precedent for this happening before. This was Abraham's faith. He said, well, God's got to do something because he made me a promise and he's got to keep it. So they go off, just the two of them, Abraham and Isaac. And then comes the awkward moment, which Abraham knew was going to come eventually. I, Isaac says, uh, hey, Dad, um, I think we forgot something, you know? Um, I mean, we got a knife and we got wood and we got a fire, but we don't have a lamb to sacrifice. And Abraham says, son, God will provide for himself a lamb. So they get up there. You can imagine that they build this altar together and they lay the wood on it. And then Abraham breaks the news to Isaac. He says, well, son, 
here's the deal. Uh, you are the sacrifice, actually. Uh, God told me to bring you up here and sacrifice you. I don't understand why, son. I don't, I don't know why I, I have to do this. I'm just trying to obey God. I, I'm pretty sure that God's going to raise you from the dead because he made this promise to me that I'm going to be a grandfather and that you're going to have kids. So I'm trusting in that. I, and I'm just going to trust and obey God that, and just go step by step and do what he tells me to do. So son, would you please climb up on the altar? And, and then I'm going to tie you down. And then I'm, I'm going to have to stab you in the heart, son. And I'm going to try and make it as quick as I can, make it as, as painless as possible, okay? So I'll see you on the other side, and we'll see what God does. Remember, Isaac is not a little kid here. He's a grown man, like I said, 15 to 30 years old, somewhere in there. This would make Abraham up to 130 years old. If Isaac wants to, right, he can, you know, give him the one-two punch and run back home. You know what I mean? He can overpower him. He can just tell him, no. He can say, come on, make me, you know? He could run away. Abraham wouldn't stand a chance against a young guy. But what we see here is the total submission of a son to his father. He gets up on this altar of his own accord. He's not forced. He obeys his father and trusts in God. Can you imagine that? Abraham ties him down. He's got all this firewood beneath him. And Abraham raises the knife and is, he's aiming. You can imagine he's bracing himself. He wants to do it in one swift blow. And right at the last second, we read that the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham with a voice from heaven and says, Enough. Stop. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Here is the sacrifice of Abraham. Think about this. It wasn't his son that he had to sacrifice. It was his will. It was his volition. He had to sacrifice that to God. And this is the call of God for you and I as well. It's to surrender our will and trust him and follow him unconditionally. To not hold anything back. To take our hands off of our lives. To get off the throne of our lives. To let him ascend that throne. That is Christianity. That's what it means not only to accept Jesus as your personal Savior, but to make him Lord of your life. You know, this is the spiritual act of worship. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. You see, it wasn't the sacrifice of Isaac that God wanted. It was the sacrifice of Abraham's life that God was after. He knew he already had it, but he wanted Isaac to see it. And he wanted you and I to see it. Because at this point, like I said, Isaac is grown up. And now here's what's happening. Until now, this God has been the God of Abraham. But now, Isaac's going to get married. He's going to have a family of his own. And the God of Abraham must become the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He needs to have his own faith. And he needs this example of what it really looks like to walk with God by faith. So now we've talked about the sacrifice. We're going to take a little less time, but we're going to talk about the provision. So there's Abraham. He's holding this knife. You can imagine he's got his leg up on the altar. He's probably bracing himself. He's aiming so that he can drive the knife right through his son's chest. And when the angel of the Lord speaks to him finally and says, Enough. Stop. And Abraham looks over and he sees this ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham offers up the ram instead of his son Isaac as a burnt offering as an act of worship. And Abraham names this place, The Lord Will Provide. In Hebrew, it's called Yahweh Yira, or some people pronounce it uh, Jehovah Jireh. 
And, and here's how one translation puts it. This is the New Living Translation. Abraham named that place Yahweh Yira, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provided a ram to be sacrificed in place of Isaac. And here's what's interesting. When we start talking about provision, this is where the story gets really interesting, right? This is where we see the picture of Jesus begin to emerge very clearly. Because, first of all, this ram that was sacrificed in place of Isaac, this is the first instance, first picture in the Bible of something which, we, which we're going to see is going to be very important to understanding Jesus. And that is, this is the first in- instance of a substitutionary sacrifice, And this idea of a substitutionary sacrifice or substitutionary atonement, that that the whole sacrificial system is going to be later based upon and developed by God as a way to deal with the sin of the people, as a way to atone for sin. But even that sacrificial system, right, it too is, is merely a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus would make in our place. Because the wages of sin is death. And separation from God, but He took our place. He took our sins upon Himself. He became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was alienated from God that we might, through His sacrifice in our place, be reconciled to God. You know, this week uh, was a major Jewish holiday. It was Yom Kippur. I don't know how much you guys follow this stuff. Uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, and this is one of the Uh, you know, festival, feast days in the Old Testament, uh, sacrificial system in the religious calendar. And every year what would happen at that time is that a sacrifice would be made to atone for the sins of the entire nation. And now nowadays in, in modern Judaism, this is done a little bit differently because since 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, there is no more place for them to make sacrifice. So nowadays, in the, in the um, Jewish religion, when they, they practice the Day of Atonement, what they do is they gather and they mourn their sins, they feel bad, and they confess their sins. But the interesting and the sad part is that when you look at the Old Testament, you see that uh, sin has to be dealt with by sacrifice. But now, for 2,000 years, they have no way to properly deal with sin, to atone for sin through sacrifice, because there is no temple. You know, according to Jewish faith, the the writer of the Hebrews points this out. He says, without the shedding of blood, without sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here, so here's what God's word tells us, though. You know, particularly in in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is the perfect and ultimate atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. So that there's no longer any need for any more sacrifices to ever be made. This is part of what Jesus was declaring when he declared on the cross with his final breath, it is finished. You know, furthermore, here's the picture. Isaac asks his dad, Dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham tells him, Son, God will provide for himself a lamb. But then what did they find? A ram. Well, that's not exactly the same thing now, is it? And I think that's intentional. Because it wasn't for 2,000 more years after this that John the Baptist would announce that the true Lamb of God had come. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, he's here. You notice this, they went to the land of Moriah. Now the land of Moriah is the uh, place where present-day Jerusalem sits. 
Isn't that interesting? Mount Moriah is the place upon which the old city of Jerusalem sits, upon which the temple sat. And if you remember the, the mountain Calvary, that hill, the place of the skull, that's part of the old city. That's part of Mount Moriah. In fact, Second Chronicles 3 verse 1, it tells us that Mount Moriah was the exact place where Solomon built the temple of God. And of course, you know, the temple was the place where substitutionary sacrifice, atoning sacrifice was made. Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, which is part of Mount Moriah. The same hill. Notice this, there's some more parallels, I'll just run through them. Isaac was a miracle child, born to an elderly barren woman. Jesus was a miracle child, born to a virgin. Isaac's birth was foretold. Jesus' birth was also foretold. Isaac's name was chosen by God before he was born. Jesus' name was chosen by God before he was born. Isaac was sacrificed on Mount Moriah. Jesus was sacrificed on Mount Moriah. Isaac submitted to his father and willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed. Jesus submitted to his father and willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed. Isaac went on a three-day journey. Jesus went on a three-day journey until his resurrection. And notice this, after this event, we're not going to see Isaac again for a while. The next time we see Isaac will be when he comes for his bride. In the same way, Jesus, after his sacrifice, he went away and he will only return when he returns for his bride. To take us, that's us, we're the bride of Christ, up to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I love verse 14. It says that even in Moses' day, the people had this saying about this mountain. In Mount Moriah, they said, in that mountain, God will provide. They had no idea how prophetic their little cultural saying was. You know, because on that mountain, 2,000 years later, and 2,000 years back from where we stand today, God did provide. God provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He provided the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice, the ultimate atonement for sin, when he sacrificed his son, his only son, whom he loved. Let me finish by saying this. When God asked Abraham for the ultimate demonstration of love and commitment, he asked for Abraham's son, and when God the Father wanted to show us the ultimate demonstration of his love and commitment to us, he gave his son. And when we look upon this greatest act of love, right, the proper response is to say, Lord, just as the Lord said to Abraham, now I know that you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God loves you, Whitefields. I hope you know that. And he provided, he, he proved it beyond any shadow of a doubt by giving up his son, his only son, whom he loved for you. God's word says this in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the message of this section, that God loves you, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and God is calling you to take your hands off of your life and to give yourself over to him completely, fully, to follow him, to trust him unconditionally because he loves you, and his plan for your life is way better than anything that you could ever manufacture for yourself. Because the life that he wants to give you is one that is not only fulfilling and satisfying and joyful now, but it is life everlasting. It's life reconciled to your creator and your maker. It's life 
lived the way it was designed and meant to be lived, the way that you were created to be. And there's, if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever whether or not this God is trustworthy, whether or not he actually cares about you, whether or not he is truly able to provide for you, whether or not he will keep all of the wild promises which are encompassed in the gospel, then you need to look to Mount Moriah, to Mount Calvary, where God the Father gives his son, his only son, whom he loves as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, as we look upon Mount Moriah, as we look upon Mount Calvary, as we raise our gaze, raise our eyes, and we look at the cross, Lord, we see there that you do love us. That you gave your son, your only son, whom you loved for us. Lord, the ultimate demonstration of love, the ultimate demonstration of your ability to provide. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I pray, Lord, that right now, this wouldn't just be information to us, but Lord, let it sink down deep in our hearts. Let it be something that we know in our heart of hearts, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that 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 you would increase our appreciation and understanding for who you are and how much you love us, Lord, and that that would motivate us and move us to live for you and to trust you unconditionally. Thank you, Lord, that you have good plans for our lives. And we just pray, Lord, let your will be done in our lives. Help us to, to get off the throne of our lives and to let you ascend to your rightful place. And we pray all that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.